right, it's time for our very last lesson. I can't believe it. What are we going to do with our lives now? I don't know. There we go. Just watch Instagram. <laughs> I'm just going to make reels. All right. Well, it is so good to be back with you. Uh, my husband and I had an amazing vacation, Zion National Park. We saw beautiful things, had the best time together. And we also learned that strenuous hiking in your 40s feels very different than strenuous hiking in your 20s and 30s. We would get back to our room, we're just like, oh, wow. But it was so much fun. And I love trips where we do lots of hiking because I feel better about doing lots of eating. Kind of balances itself out. Um, I didn't come home with any weight loss, but I don't think I came home with weight gain. So that's the advantage of the active vacation. Uh, hopefully the video worked out well for you last week um, and you enjoyed reflecting on the cross of Jesus Christ as presented to us through the prophecy of Isaiah. Today is my uh, very favorite topic, and it's the new heaven and the new earth. And it's the best way to end, and so I'm really excited about digging in with you. So let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we will wrap up this study. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've revealed to us uh, in these 10 weeks. And God, for a lot of us, um, it, well, I know for me, I'll speak for me, it's been tough. It's been hard. Um, this is a long book, and uh, it has stretched the limits of our capacity to, uh, to read and to retain and to process and to remember. And yet, Lord, uh, even if we say we walk away understanding 10% of it, that is a life-changing 10%. And so, Lord, I thank you for what you have taught us. I thank you for what you have revealed to us. I thank you for what you have um, planted in our hearts. We don't even realize. Maybe we'll realize it a month from now, a few years from now. Maybe one day we'll be reading through the Gospels and we'll think to ourselves, oh, that's rooted in Isaiah. God, I, I pray um, as we wrap this study up, as we focus on the very end, which is actually the beginning. <laughs> oh, would you fill our hearts with hope? Because, Lord, we are women who live in a world that is full of despair and sadness and evil and hurt and pain. And so, Lord, I pray that for this next hour, you would lift our eyes above all of that to see the glory and the beauty and the goodness that you have for us, not just someday, but that is breaking through even now, through your people, through your church. And so, Lord, just teach us, guide us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond. And it's in the precious name of our Savior we pray. Amen. So I wonder how many of you have heard a gospel presentation that centers on a statement that goes something like this. 
accept Jesus as your Savior so that you can go to heaven when you die. Is that something? Yeah. Perhaps it's been presented in the form of a question, such as, if you were to die tonight and you stood at the pearly gates and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? <laughs> it's a pretty run-of-the-mill standard, at least here in America, gospel lingo, gospel presentation. I, I'm sure that most, if not all of us, have heard something similar. Some promise of escape from this terrible, awful earth to a place of eternal rest if we will only but trust Jesus. What's interesting, and I didn't even know this until a few years ago, but that notion of leaving this earth and going to some ethereal utopia way up yonder in the sweet by and by is not the concept of heaven that you find in the Bible. That idea actually originated with Plato's philosophy. And from what I understand, I'm still kind of researching where it took root in, in the church. But from what I understand, it took root around the Middle Ages. So what about heaven? Where do we go when we die? It's an important question. <laughs> well, our bodies go in the ground, or perhaps an urn. <laughs> and there are only four verses in the New Testament that explicitly refer to what happens to a believer's disembodied self. Sometimes we refer to it as our spirit or our soul when we die. And it's interesting because these verses actually tell us very little. Are you guys interested in knowing what the verses are? I know you would be, so I wrote them down, all right? The first one would be Jesus, the thief on the cross, right? This is uh, Luke 23, 43. <clears throat> Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. The second one is in Philippians 1, I think it's around like 20, maybe like 20 to 24, where Paul is making a comment in his letter to the Philippians. He's in prison. He has uh, a very good chance that he could be executed. So he's kind of grappling with that, and he basically says, you know what, I'm good either way. I think I'm going to stay because there's more fruitful work for me to do among you. But you know what? If I die, I get to be with Christ, which is way better. Okay? So in Paul's mind, he dies, he's with Christ. He reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 5, which is our third reference. He talks about there how suffering makes us hope for eternity, how death really isn't the tragedy that the Greeks have made it out to be, because if we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. The fourth one is a little more obscure. It's in Revelation 6, 9. John has an apocalyptic vision, which they're all obscure, right? But he sees um, in, in the heavenly temple, he has a vision underneath the altar of the souls of the martyrs crying out. And they are with the Lord. 
So what do we know for sure about believers who have died? We know that their bodies await the resurrection, and their disembodied selves are with Jesus. That's it. That's all we're told. Now, are we given some kind of temporary loner body in the intermediate state prior to the resurrection? Maybe. There's no verse about that. Maybe. We, we can speculate. We can wonder. We can use our imaginations. All we know about those who we love, who have died, who are believers, is that they are at this very moment with Jesus. What the biblical authors care about, what the Spirit led them to write about, is not so much this concept of heaven that we are so preoccupied with, where do we go after we die? But they were led to write about the new heaven and the new earth. The ultimate resurrection. The eternal state that Christ will consummate at his second coming. Not way up yonder in the sweet by and by, but right here on earth. And this begs the question, why? Why do the biblical authors care so little about the intermediate state immediately following death and so much about the eternal state following Christ's return? I thought a lot about this. And I think it's because the biblical authors were clued, very, very clued into the biblical story. The big, big story. A story that begins with a garden temple called Eden. A story that begins with heaven and earth fully united. No separation, no barrier. Where God's kingdom was the only kingdom. And where his personal presence would fill the entire world. Where humans would live forever, ruling and reigning on his behalf. That was God's plan. And what have we learned about God's plans in this study? God's plans don't fail. Now, sin entered the picture, didn't it? And it took what God had combined, heaven and earth, completely one, and it ripped them apart. And so there's now this massive separation between God and humanity, and the first real image of that that we see, well, I guess it would be Adam and Eve hiding, but then you have those cherubim and the flaming swords that are are preventing them from entering Eden. And then, of course, the temple is built. You've got that thick, thick curtain dividing the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God is dwelling, from the rest of the temple and, of course, the people. Over and over again, we get these images of separation. Heaven and earth are, are separate, and you, you can't go back and forth unless God provides a little hot spot of his glory. And so we have these little hot spots of God's presence. You have the, remember Jacob has the, the ladder, the, the dream of the ladder, and he's just shocked. He's like, the presence of God is in this place, a little hot spot. And of course, the temple, the tabernacle, big deal hot spot of God's presence. You have these little hot spots of God's presence, but but the presence of God, heaven and earth, are, are separate. But this earth that we're living on right now will be everything. Everything 
that God intended it for it to be from the very beginning. It will be fully united with heaven once again. And the biblical hope is not for us to be transported somewhere else, but for God to come here in all of his glory and make all things new. Uh, Randy Alcorn says it this way in his book, Heaven, and I, if I could buy a copy of this for every Christian I know, I would. It is one of the most important books for every single one of us to have in our theological library. Um, It is an extensive study on what the Bible has to say to us about heaven. So good, so good. But he says this, he says, God's kingdom and dominion are not about what happens in some remote, unearthly place. God has tied his glory to the earth and everything connected with it. Mankind, animals, trees, rivers, everything. The earth is not disposable. You all think those Christians who care about recycling and the planet are wackadoos? No, they're not. Their theology is more accurate than some of us. But, you know, if you believe that heaven is escaping this earth and going up to the sky somewhere forever and ever, sure, trash the planet. But if this is God's world, if this is the focal point of his plan, if this is the focal point of the new heaven and the new earth, maybe we should take care of it. I'm sounding so liberal this morning, aren't I? I'm sorry. Sorry. The earth is essential to God's plan. He will not let it. This is the reality that drives the final chapters of the book of Isaiah, where we get a glimpse of what the new heaven and the new earth will be. We will see who makes it happen, and we will see how it comes to pass. Now, the very first question on your listening guide there, it really is a simple outline. Where, what, who, and how? The answer to the question where is one word. I don't know why I gave you so much space. Write it really big. Earth. (laughs) Earth. Earth is where the new heaven and the new earth are going to be. That's an easy answer. Let's go ahead and jump to the what. The what. What will the new heaven and the new earth be like? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. We're going to jump around a little bit today more so than we usually do. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you, Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. Little trivia, Isaiah is the only prophet who uses the metaphor of light to any notable extent. Jeremiah briefly refers to it, but Isaiah is where we get all the light imagery. Verse 4, raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on the hips of nursing mothers. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because of the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. 
Caravans of camels will cover your land, and young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you and go up on my altar as an acceptable sacrifice. I will glorify my beautiful house. Who are these who fly like a cloud, like doves to their shelters? Yes, the coasts and islands will wait for me with the ships of Tarshish in their lead to bring your children from far away, their silver and gold with them, for the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Although I struck you in my wrath, yet I will show mercy to you with my favor. I think that second part of verse 10 could almost be a summary statement of the entire book of Isaiah. (laughs) What's happening here? Well, the light of God's glorious salvation dawns in Zion. And there has been so much darkness. There has been so much sin. There has been so, I mean, we have just like been stuck in some of these passages that are just like, ugh, right? But the light dawns, and it is the most epic sunrise of all time. Any sunrise fans in the room? Who are my early risers? That's right. I will, I mean, oh my goodness, Greg and I, Got up really early one morning to go see the sunrise over, over a mountain range in Zion. And it was just like, so my jam. Like, I'm all about, let's get up early and see the sunrise, right? Well, this is the most epic sunrise of all time because Yahweh himself is the sun. And this light is like a, it's like a magnet for the nations who find their fulfillment and their longings, of, of all their longings in the Lord and in his beautiful city. So there's like this pilgrimage of all the people, people from all nations coming to enjoy this light. Let's keep reading verse 11. It says, your city gates will always be open. They will never be shut day or night so that the wealth of the nations may be brought to you with their kings being led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you will perish And those nations will be annihilated. We see echoes of the promise to Abraham here. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon will come to you. It's pine, elm, and cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will glorify my dwelling place. The sons of your oppressors will come and bow down to you. All who reviled you will fall face down at your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Instead of your being deserted and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an object of eternal pride, a joy from age to age. And you will nurse on the milk of nations and nurse at the breast of kings. And you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. All right, so we go back to verse 11 there. We see there's no more enemies. There's just this ceaseless stream of nations bearing gifts. There's this picture of overwhelming abundance and joy. It's like there's not even the language to express the abundance that's happening. Now let's talk for a second about why the city of Jerusalem, also called Zion, is the focal point of the new creation. So much so that if you read Revelation 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth is called the new Jerusalem. 
John actually sees a vision of the city of Jerusalem coming down. Why why Jerusalem? Is God going to somehow shrink his church so that we'll all fit on the Temple Mount? I don't know if you've ever been there or seen pictures or looked at a map. It's not that big. Is there going to be some, like, Ant-Man action? There's going to be little tiny people. We're all going to fit together in one geographical location. Well, that's silly. Of course, that's not what's going to happen. Jerusalem is where the temple was located. And the temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. I talked about those little hot spots of God's glory, of God's presence. The temple in Jerusalem is the iconic hot spot of the presence and the glory of God. So all these images and references to Jerusalem as the new heaven and the new earth are telling us that one day the whole world will be God's temple. One day the whole world will be Zion. One day the whole world will be one giant hot spot of God's presence, just as it was in the very beginning. Not that we'll all squish into Zion. Zion will be expanded so that we all fit into it. That's why, by the way, there's this um, reference, Revelation 21 and 22, these dimensions are given of this city that's coming down, Jerusalem. And it's a perfect cube. And if you search scripture, you say, where else is there a perfect cube in scripture? Well, it's the Holy of Holies. And, and so it's it's it's... It's figurative language. It's metaphorical. It's, it's, the whole entire world's going to be the Holy of Holies because heaven and earth are going to come together and there's, there's no more separation between God and man. Like, his presence will fill every square inch of this planet. So exciting. Chapter 60, verse 17. Let's keep reading. It says, I will bring gold instead of bronze. I will bring silver instead of iron, bronze instead of wood, iron instead of stone. I will appoint peace as your government and righteousness as your overseer. So what we see there is this this total transformation. More over-the-top abundance. Verse 18, violence will never again be heard of in your land. Devastation and destruction will be gone from your borders. You will call your walls salvation and your city gates praise. This is a beautiful image. If you think about it, earthly kingdoms, all of the Egypts and the Babylons of the world, all of them have one thing in common, and that's that they depend on violence and injustice to grow and thrive. The strong prey on the weak, the haves enslave and oppress the have-nots. That's the way the world works. Talk about it's a dog-eat-dog world. It really is. And God says here that one day that will be gone forever. It's really interesting if, if, you, if you study and even secular historians um, admit, you have to. It's, it's plain and clear evidence that the con- ideas of equality, of intrinsic human rights, of loving neighbor as self, Those are all distinctly Christian ideas that find their roots 
in the Hebrew Bible and nowhere else. Nowhere else. That's why, why do you think, why does the early church attract so many women and slaves and, and those who uh, were impoverished? Well, because there's such a radical idea. There was no, there was no sexual ethics in Rome. There was no gender equality in Rome. Crazy ideas. Those are distinctly Christian ideas. And I love the fact that we have a whole secular world obsessed with equality. I'm like, y'all don't even know. You don't even know where that came from. It came from the Christian Bible. That's where that comes from. Let's pick up in verse 19. The sun will no longer be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you, because the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set, your moon will not fade, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your sorrow will be over. All your people will be righteous. And they will possess the land forever, and they are the branch I planted, the work of my hands, so that I may be glorified. The least will become a thousand, and the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. I will accomplish it quickly in its time. So you have darkness being completely done away with. The light is the Lord because his presence is permeating everything. When it says this reference to the least becoming a thousand, the smallest and mighty nation, that the promises to Abraham are fulfilled. That's what he promised Abraham. You, the least. Wife who has never been able to have children, both of you beyond the age. I'm going to make you a great nation. A nobody. He called out a Babylon. Didn't even know who Yahweh was. And look what God has done. He's fulfilled every single promise. Now turn to chapter 65, verse 17. This, another little trivia, if you ever Bible trivia night, (laughs) this is actually the first, very first place in the Bible where the exact phrase, new heavens and new earth, is used. Verse 17, For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. The word create and creating really stands out here. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. We see echoes of that, Revelation 21, 4, right? No more sadness, no more crying, no more pain, no more weeping. There's a, a new creation that is happening. Look at verse 20. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. Now, I read that, and I thought, wait, 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 wait. Death and the new heaven and the new earth? That's not, that can't be right. And that's true, it can't be right. Because you have to read this in light of other passages. Uh, If you turn back to chapter 25, 7 and 8, which is a long time ago, we were there. 
25, 7, and 8, also talking about the eternal state. He says, on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheep covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. He will remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. So what this verse 20 is saying is that over the whole of life, from infancy to old age, in the new heaven and the new earth, death will be no more. Verse 21, people will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or build bear children destined for disaster, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. All right, so there's building houses and there's gardening and there's working. Do you see any evidence in these pages that we are going to spend every waking hour singing in a worship service? La, 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 praise the Lord for all eternity. I just thought that for the longest time. As a little girl, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I like church. I don't like it that much. I don't want to just sit in church forever. This does not sound fun. I sing okay. I'm not really a choir person. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a little rough. That is not what we're going to be doing, you guys. Now, certainly there will be so much singing and so much rejoicing and so much worship. And I will sound like Beyonce. But we're going to live actual lives full of meaningful work. We'll build houses and we'll plant gardens and we'll rule and we'll cultivate the earth as God's image bearers, just as it is described in Genesis chapter 1. There'll be culture. There'll be nations. There'll be ethnicity. There will be travel. There will be all, all kinds of things. I think that Jesus is a great prototype for kind of how to think about the new heaven and new earth. You think about when Jesus came back after his death, he rose again. It's very interesting because there were moments where he was so like the old Jesus, right? And he, he was recognizable, he had the scars, he, he was hungry, he ate. And yet there were also moments where, like on the road to Emmaus, where they just didn't recognize him. There's something extremely different about him. And there was also something extremely similar to what they always knew him to be. So there's this continuity and there's this discontinuity. And I think we think about the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to be the same way. When we think about our glorified bodies, it's going to be the same way. There's going to be some continuity between what is now and what will be, but there's going to be also profound discontinuity. There's going to be new things, wonderful things, renewed things. And so I think thinking of Christ, it, it's, a good, it's a good prototype for how to think about the connection between what is now and what will be. But so much of what we know and enjoy and love now will be carried over. There will be tremendous continuity between the earth now. 
and the new heaven and new earth. And some of you who were sitting there last week thinking, man, I sure would like to go to Zion National Park. Go. I mean, we've got all eternity to enjoy the earth. There's going to be mountains, and there's going to be hiking, and there's going to be the best food. It might all be vegetarian, but it's going to be delicious. Pasta doesn't need meat. I'm good. Pasta and bread, right? Um, but, but those kinds of things, and I find myself, especially I'm getting older, and there's only so much time, and there's only so much money, and I'm like, man, when my kids are grown and we can actually go, our bodies aren't going to be able to do this. And so I'm like, wow, I'm so sad about it. But I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We literally have all eternity to enjoy God's good earth. So chill with the wanderlust, right? Like, we are going to get to do this forever. I don't know about you, but that's extremely thrilling to me when I think about it. Verse 24, even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will heal. Man, this one got me this week. I think I read over it a bunch of times. And then one time I, I read it again, I was like, whoa, 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 hold up. <laughs> so there's not going to be any more fighting to believe that God is working, even though we can't see him working. <laughs> there's no more curse and no more sin. And because of that, there's no more delays. There's no more tension between like, well, I know God is good, but man, this doesn't look good. You know, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he kind of boils the entire Christian life down to three things. Faith, hope, and love. But then he says, you know, no, 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 no. You know what? It's really just one. There's really just one that's like the main thing, and it's love. Now, why does he say that? Because faith and hope are temporary. Faith and hope are 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 this side of eternity types of things. They look ahead. They, they have to believe in what is unseen. Hope has to expect what God has promised. And one day we won't need faith and hope because all of God's promises will be fulfilled. Our faith will become sight. But love, love will be the hallmark of God's people, living in God's place, enjoying God's presence forever. And ever and ever. That's why it's the best. That's why it's the most important. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust. A little Genesis 3 reference there. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. We've seen this before. We saw it back in chapter 11. Remember when babies were playing with snakes? Yeah, just let your baby play next to the snake pit. No big deal, right? Full dominion over nature will be restored to mankind. The most vulnerable and the most violent will live in complete harmony. Isaiah is describing a total transformation of the world as we know it and a complete and utter return to what God intended for his great beautiful world from the very beginning. Now there's one more passage in this week's reading that shows us what the new creation will be like. It's at the very end, chapter 66, verse, verses 22 and 23. 
says this, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me, this is the Lord's declaration, so your offspring and your name will remain. So there in verse 22, we have a guarantee that the new creation is going to last forever and ever and ever. It's never going to end. Then he moves into verse 23. He says, all humanity will come to worship me. That would be all redeemed humanity. They will worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. Now, I want you to think new moon, Sabbath. I want you to look back with me at chapter 1, verse 13. Long, long time ago, we took a look at this. Chapter 1, verse 13. Isaiah is exposing the, um, the false worship of the people. So they were doing all of the right things. They were continuing business as usual, but their hearts were not in it. And so this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 13. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity with the festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. So in the very first chapter, we have the new moons, Sabbath feasts. They show up again at the very end, but at the very end, notice... They aren't desecrated, they're celebrated. They're celebrated. In fact, the new creation is depicted as the ultimate worldwide Sabbath party. And the Lord instituted fasts and the Lord instituted feasts. Sabbath is a feast. New moon is a feast. The new heaven and the new earth is the people of God resting forever in the presence of God, ordering their lives around God for all eternity. It's a beautiful picture. A big, fat, honking, eternal, God-centered worship feast. So that's the what. Of course, there are so many other passages in Scripture that fill that in even more. Revelation 21 and 22 should be read right alongside the passages that we just read. And if you were to do the homework, you got to go to to that a little bit, bit, do some of that work. We are going to move on to the who. Who makes the heaven, the new heaven, and the new earth a reality? Turn with me to chapter 59, verse 9. Fifty-nine, verse nine. All right, so we've been hanging out in the new heaven, new earth. We're about to be yanked right back to reality. All right, verse nine. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight. We're like the dead among those who are healthy. 
We all growl like bears and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions have multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgression and deception against the Lord, turning away from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering lying words from the heart. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off, for truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing. And whoever turns from evil is plundered. All right, so we're right back to the earth under the curse of sin. This is a far cry from what we just finished reading about. And sadly, what's described here hits pretty close to home. Probably, I don't know, I read that last part. I'm like, all right, yeah, yep, yep. Truth is missing. (laughs) But look at what happens. In the second part of verse 15, the Lord saw that there was no justice, and he was offended. He saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So what does he do? So his own arm brought salvation, and his own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So he will repay according to their deeds, fury to his enemies, retribution to his foes, and he will repay the coasts and islands. They will fear the name of the Lord in the west and his glory in the east, for he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. And then we have the summary statement in verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is the Lord's separation. So what happens? How is the sin and the corruption that is continually pushing back against the kingdom of God, how is it dealt with? Through a Redeemer, who is also a warrior. He's armed. He is dressed for battle. Now take a look at chapter 61. We actually get to hear this Redeemer warrior speak. Verse 1, chapter 61. The Redeemer warrior is talking and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the oppressors, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair, and they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Now, hold your place there. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4.
Genesis chapter 4. One thing that I have really taken away from the study of Isaiah is how much Christ's identity was shaped by the prophecy of Isaiah. I mean, just see it. I, I can't wait to, as soon as this is over, I, I'm going to read through the Gospels. With, because Isaiah is fresh on my mind, and I just have a feeling that so much of it is just going to pop like it, like it never has before. But Luke chapter 4 is one of those places, starting verse 14, says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through all the surrounding districts, and he began teaching in their synagogue. So that's where uh, the Jews would gather to worship um, the people who gathered in synagogues would have been intimately familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah. He was praised by all, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah, actually would have been a scroll, was handed to him. And he opened the book, and he found the place. He found the place. He went looking for it. Where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Now, if you notice, there's one little part of the Isaiah 61 passage that Jesus lives out, leaves out very intentionally. It's the part of 61.2 that says the day of our God's vengeance. He leaves out the judgment part. And that's because the vengeance was reserved for his second coming. And he, in Luke 4, is talking about his first coming. He first came to save through his suffering and death. He will return to judge. Isaiah elaborates on the judgment aspect of Christ's return a little more in chapter 63. We're not going to read that, but that's where the anointed warrior's garments are stained red. And the watchman says, why are your garments stained red? And the warrior, the redeemer warrior, responds by saying that he has tread the winepress of the wrath of God. Which is an image that John picks up in the book of Revelation. All right, let's read, uh, let's finish out this little section of chapter 61, verse 4. It says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priests. Well, that's something the people of God had never been able to do. <laughs> They were called to be a priesthood, Exodus 19. Did a really bad job at it. But something's going to happen. They're going to be the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and you will boast in their riches. In the place of your shame, you will have a double portion. 
in the place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. What that says to us is that all the things in the world that have long been unfixable, ancient ruins, they will, through the work of this anointed redeemer warrior figure, be forever restored. Beautiful imagery. Beautiful imagery that we have here. All right, that brings us to the final question. So we have the where, it's going to be earth. We have the what, that's a big answer. We have the who, it's Christ. How? By what means does the new heaven and the new earth become a reality? I don't know about you, I'm ready for it. So I'm way past, remember when you're like a teenager and you're like, I just want to get married first. And you're like, I just want to have kids first. Well, I'm done. Like, I'm done with all the things. Just anytime, right? Anytime. <laughs> Isaiah gives us two answers to this question. I'll go ahead and throw them out to you and then we'll find them in the text. Prayer and proclamation. Those are the means by which the new heaven and the new earth become a reality, by prayer and proclamation. Look with me at chapter 62, verse 1. It says, I will not keep silent because of Zion, and I will not keep silent because of Jerusalem until her righteousness shines like a bright light and her salvation like a flaming torch. So I wanted to read that verse because I wanted you to see in this context, full restoration is promised. Now skip down to verse 6. Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen on your walls. They will never be silent day or night. There is no rest for you who remind the Lord. Remind the Lord of what? Well, remind the Lord of his promise to restore. <laughs> Not that he has forgotten. But they're going to continually place it before him. And they're going to continually plead for him to accomplish it. Verse 7, do not give him rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. So what is going on here? Well, the anointed redeemer warrior now appoints watchmen who will continually intercede until the full work of salvation is accomplished. And a prayer of these watchmen intercessors is actually recorded for us. It starts in chapter 63, verse 7. It goes all the way to 64, 12. So we are not going to read the whole thing, even though it is gorgeous. It is one of the richest, most eloquent prayers recorded in the entire Bible. But we're just going to read um, really the last several verses of that prayer, 64, verse 1. So again, the watchmen the watchmen are crying out. They're doing the job they were given to do. 64-1, they're praying and they say, if only, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that the nation's would tremble at your presence when you did awesome works that we did not expect. You came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. 
I love this verse. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the ones who wait for him, the ones who exercise patient, confident, expectant faith. You welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways, but we have sinned and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean. All our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. No one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us melt because of our iniquity. Yet, Lord, you are our Father, We are the clay and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hands. Lord, do not be terribly angry or remember our iniquity forever. Please look, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned down. And all that was dear to us lies in ruins. Lord, after all this, will you restrain yourself? Will you keep silent and afflict us severely? That is a prayer. That is a prayer. A prayer full of an acute sense of God's holiness and their unworthiness. But there is also an acute sense of God's grace and mercy. And so he cries out in utter desperation, Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. This is a prayer for revival. It's a prayer for God to do what only God can do. And it's a prayer not for the people to go away from the world, but for God to come down to the world and make it everything he always intended for it to be. Until the day that Christ returns, God is still calling watchmen to the wall. He's calling men and women who will hope against all hope that God's will can and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's calling men and women who will look at the headlines and will look at what's going on in the world and instead of despair, Pray, tear the heavens and come down. We are a wicked, messed up people. Your church, oh my word, I don't even know what's happening there, but you are a God of grace and mercy and compassion and you have made big promises and we know that you are not done. (laughs) Come. By what means does God usher in the new heaven and the new earth? Answer number one, through the prayers of his people. 
prayers for revival, prayers for God to do what only God can do, prayers that make no sense in light of what's happening in our world, but make all the sense in the world in light of what God has promised to do for us. Let's be watchmen, or watch women. Is that a word? Watch women. (laughs) There's another answer to the how question. Prayer is answer number one. But there's another answer that we find at the very end of the book. And I want you to look at chapter 66, verse 18. And we'll close with this. It says, Knowing their works and their thoughts, I have come to gather all nations and all languages. And they will come and see my glory. I will establish a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations, to Tarshish, Put, Lud, who are archers, Tubal, Javan, and the coasts and islands far away, who have not heard about me or seen my glory, and they will proclaim my glory among the nations. They will bring all your brothers from all the nations, As a gift to the Lord, on horses and chariots and litters and on mules and camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring an offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also make some of them, we're talking Gentiles here, priests and Levites, says the Lord. Now the timeline of what's being described here is the period between the first and second coming of Christ. The sign of verse 19 is the cross, which Isaiah has thoroughly described for us back in Isaiah 53. So there's going to be a remnant that he calls survivors. And they are going to be sent out to the nations to proclaim God's glory to those who have never seen and to those who have never heard. We have another word for these people. We don't call them survivors. We call them missionaries. This right here is the clearest statement of missionary outreach and Gentile inclusion in the entire Old Testament. Texts like this are what fueled the mission of the early church. This is the seedbed of the whole missionary movement right here. And here's the thing. Christ has not yet returned. And what that means is that this passage is still happening in real time. And every believer everywhere is to play a part in the mission of proclaiming the glory of our Redeemer and King to those who have never seen and to those who have never heard. Could God bring about the new heaven and the new earth without any effort on our part? Of course he could. But he won't. prophecy of Isaiah is a lot of things. <laughs> it is a call to faith. It is a call to repentance. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to authentic 
heartfelt worship. And it is most certainly a call to hope, knowing that God's plans don't fail. But it is also a call for the people of God in every generation until our Lord returns to pray and to proclaim. It's a call to be watchmen and missionaries. Because here's the thing, the Bible does not present this world as a problem to escape. The Bible presents this world as an opportunity to redeem. And you and I get to be the instruments of that redemption. And I don't know about you, but I needed to be reminded of that. Because I can sit in my little study and just read my Bible all day long. And I forget. I forget. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And God has called every single one of us to be the means by which it is brought to pass. As we cry out for revival. And as we go out and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be in China. Right across the street. Right in your home. Wherever God is sending you. All right. Let's pray this out. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much. There's a time. I didn't know we'd make it to the end. <laughs> and, Lord, I just thank you for how you've sustained each and every one of us. Um, I think about, oh, man, entering this study with a lot of heavy burdens. Just going on in, in my personal life, I know I wasn't the only one. I see how even in these 10 weeks, you've just worked in such faithfulness. You've been so good and so kind, and things are still hard, but man, we can see your hand in it all. And Lord, we long for the day when there's no more need for faith, because we'll see. And there's no more need for hope, because all will be fulfilled. All that will, will remain of all these lessons we've sat here and we've learned, all the things we're supposed to do as Christians, the one thing that we'll still be doing is love. And so God, make us people of love. And Lord, we do pray that you'll make us people of prayer, make us watchmen, crying out every day for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a new creation prayer. <laughs> and that, that we would be missionaries proclaiming the glory of our Savior to those who have never seen and who have never heard. It's not real hard to find people like that these days. So Lord, use us, compel us. Don't let us just, you know, talk to this book on the shelf, mark it off as another book of the Bible we've studied and go on. No, this is a this is a call to, to some, some radical prayer and radical proclamation. Make us courageous and bold. And may all that we do be done in great love. We thank you for what you've accomplished in these weeks and what you'll accomplish in the weeks to come. We thank you for your word, and most of all, we thank you for our Savior. 
for his cross, for his salvation, and also for the judgment and the restoration that is to come. And we love you so. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good job, you guys. You did it. Ooh. All right. I love these. My wedding flower. Just say, was it? Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Are you guys so grateful for her? You need to clap again. You need to clap again. We're thankful. I'm so grateful. Thankful to get to do so grateful. Thank you guys for being here and for supporting women's ministry with Bible study, but a big thank you to April for spending amounts of hours we probably would never know that she spends. So you guys are dismissed and we will see you back next year. <laughs>